Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we are going to be talking about Woke Salvation Army wants you to repent for your sins of racism. Not the sins, biblical sins. Well, I guess racism probably is a, is a sin, according to the Bible. But you think of the all the kettles now, the holidays come, June, um, June. November and December are the Salvation Army's best months in terms of donations. I'm sure you've been seeing them around where you live um, already. And um, before you put some money, the, the Salvation Army is a great organization, um, except for its leaders. And um, before you put anything into those kettles, you really need to hear what my guest has to say today. And his name is Kenny Shu. He is the uh, president of an organization called Color United. And he's also the author of a new book called An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. Really interesting stuff. Um, Kenny, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Carol. Let's start. I would like to start at the beginning talking about this whole Salvation Army mess that I think probably um, most people still don't have a clue about. I know you've been spreading the word, but for the most part, um, I mean, I hadn't heard about it until I read about your work. Um, But uh, then, and then after that, we'll we'll talk about your book and the problem in general um, about the Asian minority and, and racism and um, how the Asian minority fits into the whole thing. So, so let's start with the Salvation Army. What made you, or maybe we should start really with a little bit of background about you. Where, where were you born? What is your heritage? Um, and what got you so interested in all of these Asian causes? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and just thank you for having me on the show. Uh, I was born in Maryland, Rockville, Maryland, and I was raised in Richmond, Virginia. And all around me, I saw ordinary people, ordinary Americans going about the business, their daily lives. And I was friends with people of all races, Asian, white, black. I went to uh, public school. Uh, I moved to New Jersey, became friends with many different people, many different beliefs, and all they cared about in many cases was just treating other people right, you know, doing what they they were meant to do and doing what they wanted to do. And then I come across this narrative in college and in high school partially that America is a racist country. And I know we've experienced historical racism in, in our in America, by the way, just like every other society in the entire world has, and I know that Voice of America has many international listeners who, could, who would definitely affirm that. Um, but for some reason, people in America, or there are, there are ideologues in America who seize upon this narrative to actually attack entire races and push policies that discriminate against entire races. So, like, for example, in the name of anti-racism right now, you have race preference policies at Harvard University and other Ivy League colleges that discriminate against Asian Americans. Why? Because Asian Americans are overrepresented, according to them, in the admissions process, and they need more people of other races, other minorities. So I realized that we're going down a very dangerous road in our country, and when the opportunity came to become president of my new group, Color Us United, colorusunited.org, I jumped at that chance because I want to be a part of the charge 
uh, to actually realize what the American dream is all about, which is a race-blind America where people don't care about your race, where we stop talking and fixating about it, and we truly lead our country to a country where people of all colors can get along and not worry about this endless focus and fixation on racism. Well, I think your organization couldn't have come at a better time. It has, uh, I mean, before before Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and all of that and and, uh, critical race theory, which I really, I guess, has been around longer than um, than I realized, and that a lot of people realized, you know, until until COVID, when um, kids started having Zoom uh, school, and uh, parents mm-hmm. started waking up to what they're being taught. But it's 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 pretty outrageous. Um, let's let's but let's and, and where do you where were your parents born? Yeah, my mom was born in Guangzhou in China, and my dad was born in Shanghai, also China. They immigrated here in 1990, um, and uh, they became small business owners. Uh, so when I grew up in my life, I, I realized very early on the value of hard work, right? It was impossible in the Shu household to, um, to, to get along with life while being lazy because you just saw the example that my parents took day in, day out trying to run a business with no social connections in this country, but trying to take every opportunity that they have being hungry. And, um, you know, and uh, we were able to rise, you know, from being poor to being middle class to being upper middle class, you know, by the time I was in college. So uh, I see, I see the value of hard work in this country. And that I think that's partially what really inspires me to stand up for that same principle here. Yes. Um, yes, my ancestors came from, uh, Poland and Austria and, uh, Russia and, um, they came here with nothing and, uh, and worked their tissues off (laughs) until they, Mm -hmm. you know, each generation did better and better. So yes, and nobody, we weren't asking for, um, you know, uh, special admissions and, and all of these kinds of things. It was just hard work and merit. All right, so right. let's let's talk for now. Um, let's start with the Salvation Army. So how? So you were president. You are president of Color Us United, and was it in that uh, role that you? Well, how, first of all, how did you find out about the Salvation Army becoming woke? So Colorist United, what we do is that we stand up for the ordinary employee in their company who feels distraught over the recent race-based policies that are going on in their company. So if a company requires DEI trainings that are anti-white, for example, or pushes these racial preference policies that instill racial resentment in all employees, you know, you are, you come to us and if you feel like you can't speak out because you'll get fired, we'll be, we'll speak out on your behalf. So that's exactly what happened. We had some Salvation Army officers come to us saying, you know, you have to investigate what's going on at the Salvation Army because they're pushing this let's talk about racism packet. And then I looked looked at let's talk about racism, and I was like, oh, my gosh. This is a Christian organization right here saying historically apolitical Christian organization. They take no part in politics, saying things like this country is structured on behalf of white people, oppressing black people, still is, by the way, um, saying things like it, it's wrong to be colorblind, quoting Robin DiAngelo, Ibram X. Kendi. And I saw, and so what that inspired me to make a petition um, where I, I, with Colorist United, we reached out to the Salvation Army employees and some of the biggest donors of the Salvation Army to sign on. And we actually got over 15,000 signatures now. Uh, in the short span of time that we run this campaign, and more importantly, has exposed to the public that the Salvation Army's leadership is really at odds with its truest ideals. Well, that's, uh, uh, that's well, tell us more. That's, that's great. Yeah. I mean, I know it is. You think about the Salvation Army uh, as a Christian or religious, well, I guess Christian, 
organization, very like wholesome, like apple pie, you know. And uh, of course, you would want to donate to them and all that. Um, even not only money in the kettles, but like uh, <laughs> excuse me, like clothes, and you know, when you move and mm-hmm. or have old clothes, old furniture, right. things like that, you call the Salvation Army. I mean, it's been an, right. it's been an institution. Um, in our culture for, I don't you know, forever. So, so this is really upsetting. <laughs> um, so, so, t- mm-hmm. so tell us more about what happened when you met with the head of it. Well, I know. I'm sorry. This, this is upsetting. Um, it's upsetting for people to hear, but people need to hear it because it's happening. And, sure. um, and this is what happened. And I, I'll tell you, I gave them every chance to respond and to definitively denounce critical race theory before we started this campaign um, or before, you know, before this campaign became a big deal in the news, um, we, uh, we approached Commander Hodder, Commander Kenneth Hodder, the national commander of the United States Salvation Army. In fact, he approached us and asked to meet with us. And so I agreed with him. Okay, I said, okay, let's do it. So we went over to their national headquarters in Alexandria, Virginia, he was a very hospitable person, toured, gave us a tour of the area, everything like that, wined and dined us, so to speak. But we came with a very simple ask. He said, Commander Hodder, your constituents, your donors, your employees don't want critical race theory in their organization. They don't want to be divided on the basis of race. They're the least racist people in the entire country in a country that is so extraordinarily generous that ordered these white people who you now claim are attacking black people or structuring society on behalf of them or actually giving all of this money to you so you can do all of your work for ordinary black and Latino and Asian populations and everything like that. And this, let's talk about racism packet, is the antithesis of who you are. You need to make a statement denouncing critical race theory. We said that directly, explicitly to him. And Commander Uh Hodder got back to us, and he said, I cannot do that. And I said, I'm sorry that we haven't worked hard enough to convince you. And so the part of the reason why we ran this campaign is because we want to convince him to say it. America is not a racist country. And in fact... America is the country that has lavished the Salvation Army with the capability to do all of its work for the poor and marginalized. And until he recognizes that, his donors are going to fall by the wayside in the thousands, and they already are. Well, now, what um, uh, ethnic background is uh, he, Commander Uh, Potter? he's, uh, He's white. He's Caucasian. Huh. And so what do you think is the reason why he has glommed onto this critical race theory? Well, you're a psychologist. And, <clears throat> you, and you're a psychologist. You understand guilt is very powerful. It's a very powerful emotion. And I think that there are people within the Salvation Army who are largely white, served for multi, many, many generations, who just feel very guilty, and maybe they've been guilted into this. You know, um, and in fact, you could argue the entire diversity industry today is built off of white guilt. But the the whole, you know, I would argue that that's for sure. Um, But there, there is an extensive DEI practice in the Salvation Army right now. And so, you know, the Salvation Army comes out with a statement. They say, we aren't going woke. These are false claims. Complete lies. They're just lying. They're covering it up now, which is the saddening part, because they don't even want to admit what's truly going on in their organization. They have an organized, extensive DEI bureaucracy whose objective is to peddle the systemic racism narrative inside the Salvation Army. I took their survey that they sent out to all of the officers in the Central Territory, asking them to uh, take this survey on racism within the Salvation Army. And the only answers that were acceptable in this survey was either you believe the Salvation Army was a racist organization 
or you believe that other people believe that the Salvation Army was a racist organization, and it asks you a list of questions as to how the Salvation Army was a racist organization. And there was no option. You couldn't put, a, you couldn't put down, no, I actually don't think the Salvation Army is a racist organization. And so they're making now surveys. They're hiring diversity, equity, and inclusion officers. They're putting on diversity trainings. They're quoting Kendi, uh, D'Angelo. They're imposing these upon their members. They're circulating it around them. They have an entire apparatus to protect. We have to expose that because that is what's going on in the Salvation Army right now. Okay, but getting back to this uh, Commander Hodder, um, yes, you know, white guilt is at the root of a lot of things that are going on, yes. But, like, as the command, like, he's the chief commander, the head commander, right, national commander. Um, So for him to, to bring all of this into the Salvation Army, he's not just a casual kind of, um, white guilty person. I mean, there's something more, there's something stronger, more, there's some stronger reason why he believes this or why he, um, you know, wants to change his whole organization at the risk of what's happening now, people realizing and not wanting to contribute to it. What, I mean, do you have any inside mm-hmm. information? Like, does he, you I know, do. is he married to someone who is a member of BLM or I... <laughs> um, you know, I so here's the thing. I used to believe after, and he's again because he was so hospitable to me, and because he pretty much agreed with everything we said in private to him. Hey, you know, actually, the problems in our society are not about racism. The inner city problems in our country are not about racism. There's far deeper cultural problems that are going in there right now. Um, those are things we said to him. He agreed with all of those things, and he was the head of the Salvation Army, who actually works in these inner-city communities. So I used to believe that that you know he was uh, sort of just uh, being pressured by other people, but now I'm starting to believe he actually believes in this stuff, um, which is very sad um, because because you see the way. And you watch his videos. You watch him appear on screen. I've watched every interview he's been on since we released the Salvation Army documents. Every time he says, we will not be bullied into making political statements. Excuse me, but what was this statement that you made? And let's talk about racism. That is the most political. Mm -hmm. CRT is the most political statement you could possibly make. And you say, we're not going to be bullied Mm -hmm. into making political statements. You know, hmm. and so I really I, believe, and you know, here's, here's the thing, and you're a psychologist, but he was a Harvard I, Law guy. Um, and all right, wait, wait, before we get into all of that, because that's very interesting, but we have to, you probably didn't hear the music, but we have to take a break now. So, okay, let's yeah, do take that a break. and get back, because I know you have <laughs> lots of other interesting things to add to this. Um, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. My guest is Kenny Shu. We're talking about Woke Salvation Army wants you to repent for your sins of racism. So stay tuned. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com 
These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Follow the Voice America Variety Channel on Twitter. Our hosts always have something to say, and we know that you do too. We tweet on today's hot topics, and you're welcome to follow us. Speak up and join in at Voice AM Variety. That's at Voice AM Variety. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with you today about Woke Salvation Army wants you to repent for your sins of racism. My guest today is Kenny Shu. We're talking about, uh, you know, his organization. He is the president of the Color Us United, which advocates for a colorblind society, which, you know, we, we pretty much were. Uh, I mean, I know, I know, <laughs> not when there were slaves and so on, but in recent times, um, things weren't perfect, but they were certainly a lot better than they are now. Uh, since the critical race theory came about. Um, so before the break, I was asking you about, uh, about the comm- national commander who you met with and why he was, um, you know, why he turned his Salvation Army organization, which was, uh, you know, which prided itself in not being political and, and, um, and colorblind and all of that, why he turned it on its head. So why don't you start with that? You know, Commander Hodder is a Harvard Law graduate. He's a very smart man. But here's the thing about Harvard Law. I mean, they're, they're the originators of critical race theory. Actually, critical race theory started at Harvard. It started with, by a professor named Derek Bell. And uh, it stems from this very management-oriented mentality, right? It's the It's the idea that People aren't really individuals. They don't have individual problems. They're just racial blocks. Like white people have these issues and black people have these issues and Asian people have these issues. And I think he's sort of bought into that. I think he has bought into that ideologically. He sort of feels this immense guilt about, um, about the United States and everything like that. And he's unwilling to um, assuage that. Um, I also think that, you know, the other thing about these, the Salvation Army is that you guys under, need to understand it is a great organization doing good work at the local level, but 10% of the local funding goes up to the administrative level. So when you're a $3.6 billion organization, you uh-huh. have this gigantic bureaucracy, and he's at the uh-huh. top of that bureaucracy. And you don't just climb these bureaucracies by um, doing your work. You have to play politics, and I think he does feel the need to play politics with this. Hmm. So there are, what you're saying is there are other people who want him to do this. Oh, there are definitely other people who want to to keep CRT. Where he is. He wouldn't be able to stay the head of it if, unless he did this, is what you're saying. Right? Yeah, and you wouldn't be able to get his nice corner office in Alexandria, Virginia, this beautiful Salvation Army building, either. Um, he, um, there's, there's a thing that I, I've been, when I talk with some of the officers in the Salvation Army who come up to, to, come to me with this evidence and confidentially, the, the same theme comes around. You know, um, when they're on the field, they see the real problems that are going on among Americans in the inner city and in rural areas and everything like that. And they don't have anything to do with racism. They have everything to do with drugs, crime, lack of education, poor housing. They don't have things to do with white people's racism. And when you 
get into a post like that, you start to lose touch. You know, you, when you when you become national commander and you serve for that long, and then you're when you when you get distance from the field for that long, you you start to lose touch. And I think uh-huh. that, that is what's happening. With that is fundamentally what critical race theory is. I mean, no theory could be so bad, so poorly articulated, unless it was made in an Ivy League bubble, which is exactly where it was made. Um, and so I think that the bubble has to do a lot with this. Has anyone done a biography of Derek Bell? Yes, although I can't quote you the authors. Um, but here's what I know about Derek Bell. He was the first black professor hired at Harvard Law School. And eventually his his teaching was very radical. And and eventually he was actually taken out of his position um, at Harvard. And he blamed that on his race. He said, you took me out because I was black. So he organized this gigantic protest of people to keep him in the faculty. Uh And not only did he get his, not only did he get to retain his spot at the faculty, but he got a promotion, he got tenure, he got status, everything that he wanted. And so the lesson of that to him and probably to a lot of activists is, you know, uh, assert your victimhood based on race and you get stuff, you get free stuff. And I Uh think that that's why a lot of people are doing this. Well, did he um, create critical race theory before this all happened? I mean, you know, before he got bumped out of Harvard and, and did this protest and so on, or after? I think before. He, he created a tradition called critical legal studies, which basically was a Marxist rendition of, of law and history. So, uh, for example, we believe in, um, we believe in our justice system. And Derek Bell would say, actually, our justice system is inherently stacked against blacks um, because mm-hmm. blacks get prosecuted more and, um, and get put in jail more and everything like that. But we know that the reason why blacks get prosecuted more, get put in jail more, is actually because on an aggregate level, you know, you know there are more police alterations violent crimes per, uh, per a person of African-American descent than per a person of white descent. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a non-negotiable fact. And it doesn't have anything to say about race specifically, but it has everything to do with what are the cultural traits of the neighborhood? What's actually going on? What are the problems? What are the issues that mm-hmm. are going on? And so blaming it on mm-hmm. race or calling it a racist justice system just because of the inequity of the outcomes doesn't do anybody any help. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's very interesting. <laughs> uh, it, I would love to do a, uh, I would love to like delve into his childhood <laughs> and, uh, and find the root of all of this. And that would make an interesting, uh, very interesting. I mean, when in my life am I going to find the time to do this? <laughs> I already get up at five in the morning. Yeah. But it's just, it's just, uh, it would, it would be, you know, it'd be, it could be a very worthwhile thing to, to find the twisted parts of his childhood that made him this way. Um, mm-hmm. all right, let's, let's, uh, let's talk, talking while we're on Harvard, um, let's talk, you were involved as a journalist in the lawsuit which I have heard of, but I'm, I'm really not, I never really followed it. Uh, Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard. So tell us about that. Now, that was in, when was that? 2000-something. So part of my work with Colorist United, before I even came onto the organization, I was a journalist covering this Harvard discrimination lawsuit. So what happened is Harvard created a policy that said we're going to use race in admissions. And, you know, they deny it, blah, blah, blah. They say it's a tiny factor. It's not. It's a gigantic factor. Um, But basically what happens is that if you are black or Latino, you get a bonus in your chances of getting admitted. So you can get admitted and have the same chance of admission 
as a white or Asian person with much higher scores. In fact, an Asian person has to score 440 points higher on the SAT to have the same chance of admission as a black person, and even 150 points higher to have the same chance of admission as a white person. So it's basically a, um, a sort of, we're going to we're going to discriminate against those we feel are overrepresented in the college. And so obviously this is the target of a discrimination lawsuit by Asian Americans. And all they want to do is assert their rights. Hey, guess what? We should actually be treated on our hard work and our personal merit. We shouldn't be treated on the basis of our race. And in Harvard, and so this is sort of pit these twin ideologies, you know, do you want diversity and do you want inclusion and do you want to admit more underrepresented groups, but do you want to do that at the expense of admitting the most qualified candidate, at the expense of admitting the person who would be most excellent and could best take advantage of the resources that you could offer at your university? So these, so and that's the, the subject of my book, things. An Inconvenient Minority. Go ahead. So the, so the students who um, brought this lawsuit, students for, for, for fair admission, those were all Asian students? Yes. And were they students who had been rejected from Harvard? Yes. And so what happened with the lawsuit? So over time, this is what happened. The district court ruled for Harvard, um, saying we're going to accept Harvard's analysis that they didn't discriminate against Asian Americans. And the reason why was because Harvard included this mechanic called a personality score. And in this personality score, um, they argued that Asians have the lowest personalities out of all the racist personalities. So that's why Asians are admitted at lower rates than other students. It's not because they're, uh, they're discriminated against. It's because we found that they have lower personalities than other students. Um, but wow. the thing, take a look at, yeah, so you take a, here's the thing. You look at the objective data backing that up. There is none. In fact, the alumni interviews where you could supposedly determine a person's personality rated Asian applicants the highest out of all of the races. And the teacher recommendations rated Asian applicants the second highest out of all of the races. And yet Asians get tagged with the lowest personality scores. So when Students of Fair Admissions goes back and they say, you know, this, the personality score is actually how Harvard discriminates against Asian Americans. Very compelling argument. It's made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. And this year, this upcoming term, the Supreme Court will likely take up the case. They've already asked the Biden administration for their thoughts on it. They will likely take up the case, and they could potentially rule on this incredibly dramatic case, students for fair admissions versus Harvard. Wow. Yeah, it got quiet for a long time. Um, so that's I kind of lost, stopped following it. But that's that's uh, that's. And so, what would the, so the decision wouldn't just affect? Well, would it just affect Asians, or would it be more just more? Um, I mean, I guess the idea is for the admissions to be fairer in general to all ethnic backgrounds, right? Right. I think that that's, that's the hopeful ruling that I personally am looking for. Uh, we want an end to race-based admissions. Just stop using uh-huh. race in your decision-making. Uh-huh. If there's no reason to anymore, there's no good reason. Um, and so, yes, I think this, this is why we should be cheering on the Asians as they sue Harvard and potentially take on the biggest uh, educational institution in the entire world. We should, we should cheer on these people because they're fighting for equal treatment for everybody, you know. Mm-hmm. And you might think, oh, it's just limited to Harvard. No, it's not. Because the Supreme Court's precedent on this ruling, if they strike down Harvard's race-based admissions process, that's a signal to the mm-hmm. rest of the country, the rest of the world. Nope. Actually, you can't discriminate like that anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's really interesting. I certainly hope that it that they win. <laughs> um, okay, mm-hmm. now let's talk about your book uh, called "An Inconvenient Minority: The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy." Let's see. Let me just look where we are. T- 
time was. Um, I don't want to stop you in the middle when we... Oh, no. We've, okay, we can start that now. So go ahead. <laughs> what made you write this book and, and tell us about it? I wrote this book, An Inconvenient Minority, in basically to challenge the narrative that's going on in our country um, about race. And I challenged it through a very unique angle, the Asian-American perspective. Uh, my new book, An Inconvenient Minority, we talked about the Harvard case, by the way, because they are an inconvenience, because they're a minority who gets discriminated against in the name of protecting minorities. Huh. Why? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> it, it's because Asian-Americans, even though they're a minority, that they lack uh, generational social connections, they face discrimination, they meet all of the definitions and background of being a minority, yet they still achieve in this country. They have higher incomes, higher educational attainment than even whites. And in fact, mm-hmm. 80% of Vietnamese immigrants to this country come here and they don't even speak English and in one generation, their sons and daughters graduate from college at a higher rate than even whites. How is that possible? And it's only mm-hmm. possible because of culture. Because mm-hmm. actually the United States is a meritocracy. And Asian Americans study twice as many hours as the average American. They study an average of 15 hours a day. The average American studies seven Asian-Americans have lower rates of drug use, lower rates of crime, higher two-parent family structures, higher focus on educational attainment. And, um, and therefore, it's because of that, not because of their race, that they're able to achieve in this country. So they are the inconvenient minority because they challenge the idea that the United States is a systemically racist society. How could a white supremacist, systemically racist society allow Asian Americans to get ahead of them? And the answer is mm-hmm. because it's not a white supremacist society. It's a meritocracy. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. All right. We can stop there and take a break. And uh, let's continue with, with um, the things that you talk about in your book when we come back. So today we're talking about Woke Salvation. Well, we've moved on from Woke Salvation Army wants you to repent for your sins of racism and to a more general discussion of racism and to the new book of my guest, Kenny Shu. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, Check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 
472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, talking with my guest, Kenny Shu, about uh, the Salvation Army <laughs> becoming woke and uh, totally giving up its, its American Pie uh, foundations. And um, then we've moved on to talking about the, the um, case of Students for Fair Admission versus Harvard, which you may well have heard about, and uh, it's going to be coming back into the news, and that's going to be something to watch. And then we started talking about um, Kenny's book, which is called An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. So let's, um, that's the first chapter, actually, of your book, is a broken meritocracy. So, why do you say it's broken? It's it's broken because we're supposed to the premise of the American dream, which has been available to all immigrants, all people of all nationalities, right? Is the idea that you come to this country and it doesn't matter what background you come from, but if you work hard can have success in this country and you'll be judged on the basis of your hard work, not on the basis of your background. And that's a principle of meritocracy, right? Because meritocracy says, I don't care who you are, what your background, black, white, gay, straight, Chinese, Christian, Muslim. If you do the work, you'll be judged on the basis of that. Um, or if you're competent, you'll be judged on the basis of that competence. And, um, what we're witnessing now in our country is a descent into something different. This woke identity politics says, no, we're actually going to treat you on the basis of your background. We're going to use your background against you and possibly for you. Uh, we're moving from a country where you're treated on the basis of competence to a country where you're going to get rewards and you're going to get punishments solely on the basis of things like the color of your skin. That is against the American dream. That is against meritocracy. And that's why the first chapter of my book, An Inconvenient Minority, is called A Broken Meritocracy. And, of course, you know, it's, it's not only or it goes along with um, the idea of working hard and getting ahead, starting with education, starting with how hard you work in school. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, education is that first place where children learn to develop habits that will lead to their success later in life. That's why education is so important. Um, and Asian right. Americans are the population that has taken advantage of that, at least to the greatest degree, in the sense that they study the most hours per American. They take the highest uh, mm-hmm. AP math classes, etc. cetera. Uh, and, you know, math is one of those subjects where there is really no substitute for hard work. There's a linearity of learning mm-hmm. in math. You have to just put in the work doing problems or you can't mm-hmm. get around mm-hmm. it. So, um, you know, Asian-Americans have something to teach this country, but instead of learning from Asian-Americans and learning from how they study values that any American can put into themselves, you know, the progressive left has chosen to resent them, to peddle resentment politics, to discriminate against them in admissions, and to generally just try to ignore or suppress their achievement in this country in the name of preserving the ultimate victim narrative. Mm-hmm. Let's go to your, the chapter in your book that is yeah. the truth about Asian stereotypes. So I'm asking you for, uh-huh. to tell us the truth. Oh, tell us the truth. So here's the truth. The truth is the reason why we have stereotypes is a combination of true and false reasons. Right? There are false reasons why we have stereotypes, and we shouldn't judge an individual according to stereotypes. However, the reason why we have them is because there is usually some nugget of truth in there. And one of the stereotypes we have of the Asian Americans is that they're good at math. And with the con- correct conclusion is Asian Americans actually are, on an aggregate, better at math. Um, but the incorrect conclusion is that it's because they're Asian. It's not because they're Asian. It's because they work. It's because they study more. Uh-huh. Um, and that's why. And if the reason you look, you go to a Chinatown in New York City, and these kids are 
the Chinese communities that are brought up there are basically, you know, on Saturdays you're going to extracurriculars, you're going to uh, tutoring. They don't even they can't even afford like um, like uh, luxury or bourgeois tutoring. They can only afford going to their own, you know, families' houses um, and uh, doing doing practice problems on on tests on copies that they printed out from the public library, you know. And that enables them to get ahead in education. Um, so the truth about Asian stereotypes is that, you know, there is that we should, there are things to learn about Asian Americans that can be gleaned from their high performance at these certain things. They're just, but, it, but they're not because they're Asian. Uh, they are because of cultural values that anyone could emulate. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay, um, I want to make sure we we have a little bit of time left to talk about COVID and um, the the what the fallout has been on the Asian community um, because of of COVID coming from the Wuhan lab. What is your what would what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I mean, how bad has it gotten? We, uh, you mean you mean COVID? No, I mean like the prejudice against Asians because of COVID. The prejudice against the Asians, right? The um, I'll tell you this. Look, yeah, anti-Asian crimes have risen over the past year, um, but anti-crimes of any race have risen. Actually, if you look at all of the data. All crimes against every race have risen. So Asian Americans, it's not like some unique situation. Again, the reason why they foisted, they created a anti-Asian hate crime narrative was because they wanted to tie it to white supremacy because of the Atlanta shooting um, and um, and you know some of Trump's comments on China or something like that. You know, it's, look, it's not the way I would have said it <laughs> um, if I were Trump. Uh, but that is not the sole cause, nor is it even a primary cause of the increases in, in crime and anti-Asian violence and anti-any violence. Um, and the, the, the issue that I take with it is you saw this in February. They started to blame this on white supremacy, on structures, et cetera. They tried to paint a victim narrative for Asians. They wanted Asians to get involved with the victim politics. Um, but actually, if you look at the data, it's not white supremacy that is committing violent crimes against Asians. In fact, the study from 2018 showed that it's 28% black people, 25% white people, like 20% Hispanic people, and maybe like a few more Asians. So really the violent crimes against Asian Americans have not been coming from like so-called white supremacists. Um, and uh, as, of course, as soon as that became... Yeah. I, I didn't think that it was coming from white supremacists. Um, I mean, I think that I think it's coming from um, people who people who are scared and angry about COVID. Um, certainly, we do know that it did come from the Wuhan lab. I don't think that's there's a question anymore about that. Of course, Fauci uh, supported it. You know, gave provided mm-hmm. money for that, but. Um, but um, so when people are scared and angry about the pandemic and they, I think most people believe that it came from the Wuhan lab, then when they see Asian people, it's very easy to, uh, like it's just a, a reaction to think you represent, it's your fault, that, which of course is not true, but that you, it's because of you that, that, the, uh, that COVID is, is taking over America and people are dying and that kind of thing. Maybe, but I'd like to emphasize that does not characterize the average American. Um, the average American does not look at an Asian person in the street and say, oh my gosh, you spread COVID, I'm going to kill you. Um, but we, we're talking about like a highly, you know, a... a a, a violent segment of our population that has low economic right. opportunity that is right. already, you know, in many cases already subject to a lot of the neuroses of these kinds of things that are going around attacking Asians. So that, that's just, that may have been the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, but you're talking about a lot of factors put in together on that. Yes. Well, for example, um, you know, in the New York post, 
there are a lot of uh, pictures and um, so on, and, and there are a lot of, yes, um, it's, I mean, it's not really, for the most part, it's not white people who are doing it. Um, but, I mean, <clears throat> yes, it's minority, it's, it's, uh, it's people who are, um, who are kind of thinking at that sort of uh, basic level of, oh, you know, um, if I, if I, it's your fault and they, they're, they get angry at them, but it's not really with any, with any, um, kind of reasoning, you know, any kind of, uh, reasoning that makes sense, uh, for it. It's yeah. just, it's just lashing out because of being angry that we're all sort of suffering because of COVID. Yeah, and I'd like to stress that that is exactly what race is. Race is the base level of thinking. Race is the least interesting level of thinking. It's easy to say. Race is the easiest level of thinking because it's so obvious to see in people. Oh, must have killed this person because he was black or Asian or white. Oh, must have denied this person alone because he was black or Asian or white. Forget all of the mm-hmm. other characteristics. Forget the fact that some people have, you know, have low credit scores. Forget some people. Forget mm-hmm. the fact that you dress, you know, if you go to a job interview and you're dressed inappropriately for a job interview, are you more or less likely to get a job? These are things that have nothing to do with race, right? Um, but have right. everything to do with culture. And right. this is why, if we're actually going to solve the problems in America, if we're actually going to figure out and actually come together. We need to stop thinking about things in a racial lens because it's so inappropriate and it doesn't solve one problem in our society today. I absolutely agree with you. Well, at that, it's perfect timing because we need to, uh, to close the show. I'd like to thank you very much, uh, Kenny Shu. This has been really fascinating stuff. And I want to um, remind people of the name of your book again, An Inconvenient Minority the attack on Asian-American excellence, and the fight for meritocracy. And again, he's the president of Color Us United, which um, how can people find, uh, find out how to get to that? It's like if they want more information about Color Us United. Of course. You can find Color Us United at colorusunited.org. Sign up. Sign our Salvation Army petition. Uh, and uh, sign up for our newsletter as well, so you can get to what we're all of the things that we're doing to help ordinary employees stand up to policies, divisive race-based policies that harm them. Um, and buy my book, An Inconvenient Minority, on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, IndieBound, wherever books are sold. Okay, sounds great. Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 